0: In Glassboro, New Jersey, a little community half an hour south of Philadelphia, there's a statue right by the road as you drive into town. It's of a man named Henry Rowan. He liked to be called Hank. Whenever Hank Rowan came to Glassboro, he was mobbed like a rock star, which probably embarrassed him because he wasn't given to those kinds of displays. When Hank Rowan died in December of 2015, there was a huge memorial service. Then in the evening... Students in the local college gathered around his statue, holding candles, and sang for him, as earnestly as only college kids can. My name is Malcolm Gladwell. You're listening to Revisionist History, my podcast about things overlooked and misunderstood. This episode is my eulogy for Hank Rowan. I never met him, but he's a hero of mine. I want to understand why he didn't become everyone's hero. Why Hank Rowan's example didn't spread beyond Glassboro, New Jersey.
2: Six foot one or so, yeah. not not a huge football player size, and you know, yeah. hundred and eighty pounds, you no know, thin but not skinny, and uh, had a loud voice, strong presence, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, he was. Uh, what
0: was his management style like?
2: Um, benevolent dictator, I think.
0: That's Rowan's daughter, Ginny Smith. She now runs the company her father started in nineteen fifty three. It's called Inductotherm. It's right off the New Jersey Turnpike. They
2: make industrial furnaces for melting metal. He started the company basically in our garage. And then he sold his first job to the Mint, which was kind of fun. And then the second job to GE. And then the furnaces just got bigger and bigger. Now some of them are 50 ton. uh, They're just huge. And uh, kept branching out and acquired some companies. And it kind of, it grew like Topsy, but he also worked very, very hard at it and hired good people.
0: Rowan built InductoTherm into a multinational corporation thousands of employees around the world. And he became a very wealthy man, although you wouldn't have known it.
2: You know, he would run around in um, scuffed shoes and trousers, not worried about that. He didn't care how he dressed or looked.
0: Rowan was an engineer, raced sailboats, flew planes, believed in hard work, free enterprise.
2: But you couldn't get him to buy a fancy car. He was a Nash Rambler guy in the early days. And he poo-pooed Mercedes because Mercedes wasn't one of our customers.
0: Um, What did he he drive, sort of, near the near?
2: Uh, He drove Oldsmobiles and Buicks, and finally the company here (laughs) insisted he drive a Lincoln. He drove it into the ground just about. Oh, it had a Cadillac once, but he towed his boats with that, too, because it had a bigger engine, you know. (laughs) None of this drive around and wave at people, stuff. Yeah, yeah.
0: Almost 30 years ago, Hank Rowan became friends with a man named Phil Tuminia. Tuminia was head of development for the local college, Glassboro State, just down the road. A little university started back in the 1920s on 25 acres. Tuminia would drop by and see Rowan on his way up to Trenton. Everyone involved with Glassboro and Rowan has their own version of this story. But here's how Rowan remembered it, in an interview he gave a few years before he died. It's with Don Farish, who's the former president of Glassboro State. He asked Rowan how he first got involved with the college.
3: Well, I think we blame it all on uh, Phil Tuminia because okay. he came to see me and uh, asked if I might make a donation to the scholarship fund of $1,500. Uh-huh. Well, that sounded easy, $1,500. So we gave him $1,500. And you know what? He came back. <laughs>
0: <laughs> to many, I wanted Rowan to give money to the business school, which was pretty dilapidated. So he pushed that for a while and finally I said, Phil, I have zero interest in your school of business.
3: Uh, What this world needs is more engineering, how to make things. We have to produce. And Phil, what would you do with $100 million? And he nearly fell off the (laughs) chair. But uh, that's that's how we got to that level, and that was the beginning. So you're the one that suggested the $100 million figure? not Oh, yeah, he
0: was talking about
3: 10. I
0: see. This is 1992, a generation ago. Almost nobody gave donations of $100 million back then. This was unheard of money. Rowan's gift made headlines around the country. He set a new standard.
4: Did you think it changed the world? Damn right it did.
0: (laughs) At Rowan's memorial service, Phil Tuminia gets up and says, I think accurately, that Rowan is the person who triggered what has become one of the greatest explosions in educational philanthropy since the days of Andrew Carnegie and the Rockefellers. From July of 1992
4: until the end of that decade, 20 gifts, 20 gifts of $100 million or more were given out in this country.
0: According to the Chronicle of Philanthropy, as of right now, spring of 2016, we're up to 87 gifts of $100 million or more to higher education. So everyone followed Rowan's lead, except not really. Rowan gave his money to Glassboro State College, a public university in a sleepy little town in South Jersey that no one had ever heard of. The college was close to broke. At the time, they had an endowment of $787,000. But the people who followed Hank Rowan, who were inspired by the size of his donation? Almost all of them gave money to wealthy, prestigious schools. Let me just read to you the names of some of the educational institutions that have received the largest donations in American history. Ready? In 2013, the billionaire co-founder of Nike, Phil Knight, pledged half a billion to the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. Okay, not the most prestigious institution in America. But wait. Then come three $400 million donations. The first is the billionaire John Kluge's gift to Columbia University in 2007, The second is the hedge fund manager John Paulson's gift to Harvard University in 2015. The third is Phil Knight's gift to Stanford University in 2016. And after that, in order, here are the universities that get the biggest donations. Johns Hopkins, Harvard again, University of Chicago, Princeton, Tufts, Carnegie Mellon, Cornell, Yale, Penn, Claremont McKenna, Columbia again, Baylor, USC, Columbia a third time, Michigan, University of California, Wisconsin. I could go on, if you want, through all 87, but basically we're talking about the same wealthy elite schools getting the biggest donations again and again. Hank Rowan did something unprecedented, and nobody followed him. This episode is the third in my three-part revisionist history mini-series re-examining the promise of higher education. The first installment was about why the educational system struggles to find talented low-income students. The second episode was a comparison of Vassar and Bowdoin, and why it's so difficult for some colleges to find the money for financial aid. But today, I want to talk about educational philanthropy, which I think is an issue that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. Higher education in the United States runs on philanthropy. There are almost no schools that can pay their bills just on the strength of students' tuition. Those days are over. Philanthropy is what makes the wheels turn. But there's a problem. A lot of that philanthropy doesn't make any sense. It's going to the wrong places for the wrong reasons. Those of you who follow me on Twitter will know that I'm obsessed with this issue. After John Paulson gave his $400 million to Harvard in 2015, I had a kind of Twitter meltdown, sending tweet after tweet, including, It came down to helping the poor or giving the world's richest university $400 million it doesn't need. Wise choice, John. And then, If billionaires don't step up, Harvard will soon be down to its last $30 billion. Then when Phil Knight gave $400 million to Stanford, I got called up for comment by the New York Times. I said that Stanford was part of a crazy arms race and ought to cut its endowment in half and give the balance to schools that actually need the money. The next day, I got an email from the president of Stanford, John Hennessy. He wanted to get together and convince me I was wrong. So I talked to him, and we'll get to that conversation in a minute. For now, I will only say that I was completely baffled by my talk with Hennessy. It was as if he and I were speaking different languages. I understand the people who give money to those who need money. The people who give money to those who already have all the money they need? I don't understand that. What are they thinking? Let me run an idea by you, which I think helps to frame this question. It has to do with soccer. Actually, the difference between soccer and basketball. This idea comes from two economists named David Sally and Chris Anderson, who wrote a really great book a couple years ago about soccer called The Numbers Game. One of the questions they asked was, what matters more if you want to build a great soccer team? How good your best player is, or how good your worst player is? And their answer was, in soccer, what matters is how good your worst player is.
4: Soccer is a game where if you get a single goal, if you just happen to be lucky, that goal may hold up. That's David Sally, And so mistakes turn out to be a very important part of soccer as a team sport. That leads you to think about, well, mistakes more often happen or more often produced by weaker players on the pitch.
0: Sally's argument goes like this. A soccer team has 11 players on the field at any one time. Suppose one is a superstar. And your worst player is maybe only 45% as good as the superstar. Because soccer is a sport where everyone on the field depends on everyone else, that 45% player can make one mistake and completely negate the skill of the best player. You can have eight beautiful passes in a row, but if your worst player, your 45% player, botches the ninth, then all the previous eight beautiful passes are all wasted. That's right. And because
4: of the nature of soccer... those eight beautiful passes may have only increased your likelihood of victory by a small percent, but then it goes right back to zero because somebody turns the ball over.
0: Sally and Anderson did a statistical analysis. They looked at the top soccer clubs in Europe and showed that if those teams upgraded their poorest players instead of their best players, they would score more goals and win more games, a lot more. Soccer is a weak link game.
4: Yes, having a better superstar was, of course, better, but actually having a better end of the bench or 11th guy on the pitch was actually more influential to whether you won matches or not.
0: Which would be the exact opposite of basketball.
4: Yeah. Basketball is probably the opposite end of the continuum from if you think about soccer is maybe the weakest link sport. Basketball is probably the most superstar driven
0: team sport that we have. Even the greatest basketball teams often have one, and sometimes even two, players who are barely better than mediocre. What matters in basketball is not how good your fifth player is, it's how good your superstar is. It's a strong link game. Think about Lionel Messi, maybe the greatest soccer player of his generation, versus Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player of his generation.
4: What Jordan could do on a basketball court was Jordan could guarantee or virtually guarantee that he could get the ball. You couldn't really stop him, right? He could go to the backcourt, pick up the ball. He could dribble it forward. He could break double teams. You could try to send three guys at him, but then you're really, you're really opening yourself up. He could go and get a shot. Leo Messi is so good that sometimes, from rare times, where in fact he can dribble the length of the pitch. But the fact is that he, he, in most instances, he really can't. He needs to be, he needs those eight beautiful passes to set him up. And then he can do something amazingly transcendent with
0: it. I think the weak link, strong link distinction is incredibly useful in making sense of certain kinds of problems. Suppose I said to you, for example, here's $50 billion spend it in a way that makes air travel in the United States more efficient. The last thing you would do is to go to Denver, which has that big, gorgeous new airport, and make it even bigger and even more gorgeous. No, you'd go to the worst and most crowded airports in the country, LaGuardia, Newark, Kennedy, and make them better. Because every single day, delays at Newark and LaGuardia and Kennedy ripple across the country and delay planes everywhere. You'd spend all $50 billion in New York. If you do that, you're essentially saying air travel in the United States is a weak link problem. We're limited by how good our appalling New York airports are, more than by how good our best airports are. Here's another example. One of the great puzzles of the Industrial Revolution is why it began in England. Why not France or Germany? One theory is that Britain was lucky enough to have more geniuses than anyone else, like James Watt, who invents the steam engine. But there's an economist named Joel Moker who makes a really compelling argument that England's advantage is that it had way more craftsmen and skilled engineers and experienced and mechanically minded backyard tinkerers than anyone else. Those were the people who were able to take those inventions and perfect them and make them useful. Moker is saying that the Industrial Revolution was a weak link phenomenon, not a strong link phenomenon. And because Britain had more craftsmen than France or Germany, that gave Britain a huge advantage. So what's Hank Rowan? Hank Rowan is a weak link guy. He wants to make a difference, to make his country a better place. And he thinks the best way to do that is to improve the 45% player, not the superstar. He thinks America is soccer, not basketball.
3: You're a graduate
0: of MIT, right? Right. Here he is again in the interview with Don Farish of Glassboro State.
3: Now, I would assume that MIT at that time would have been interested in receiving a gift of that size from you. Did you, uh, did you think about giving it to, uh, to that university? Or? No. Okay. They were at the time trying to raise $750 million. Uh-huh. And... Uh, my little hundred million wouldn't have made hardly any difference at all.
0: Hardly any difference at all. That's David Sally's point about soccer. Upgrading the superstar doesn't help as much as upgrading the worst player. Here's Hank Rowan's daughter, Ginny, again.
2: Basically, he said MIT had the greatest engineering school. He said it was the best education he could ever imagine. And he said, I'm sure they would do good things with my money. They'd build a building or do something positive. But he said it wouldn't make the difference that it's going to make down here. He said, I enjoy making a difference in this world.
0: So he funds an engineering school in Glassboro. It's not the best or the fanciest engineering school in the country, but it's not supposed to be. So it's one... One four-storey building? Is it four or is it three? It's three-storey building, and then it has two wings to it, and there's yeah. labs. we we'll can walk down. I went for a tour with Joe Cardona, the university's head of PR. You know, we're a state institution, so a building
5: like this was like, wow, whiz-bang, you know, look, yeah. it's an engineering building. Yeah. And uh, so here, why don't we just walk down the hall, down this Yeah. Way.
0: The school was built in the mid-1990s for 500 students. They've now crammed 750 into the building, while they wait for a new annex to be finished next door. Eventually, they want to double the school's size. The point is not to be more exclusive. It's to get bigger, to serve more students. Cardona and I stopped by a lab where a group of students were working on a Baja car, basically a home-engineered dune buggy that will race against other engineering schools on an endurance course.
4: So we got some like aircraft-grade aluminum, and we have a two-axis water jet cutter that can cut out profiles, and we designed a part that's bolted together that way, um, it's, it's nice and strong, and they're graded bolt, but if it does break, you can replace individual pieces without having to make a whole new assembly.
0: The four students I meet, Matt, Sean, Owen, and Kyle, all grew up around here. Are most of the people, students in the engineering school from New Jersey? Uh, I would say yeah, yeah, I'd the say majority, but not all of yeah. them. Yeah. Net tuition in-state is about $9,000 a year, which is pretty reasonable for an engineering school. 95% get jobs in engineering when they graduate.
5: And we really want to do blue, what I call a blue collar research. Research that is practical, that people can see the tangible result of.
0: Ali Hushman, the university's president, he's an immigrant from Iran. He grew up in a slum in Tehran, fifth in a family of 10.
5: People used to ask me to compare it. I said the best comparison would be to tell you if you have seen Slumdog Millionaire, you look at that, this one was twice as hard and tough. Oh, wow. Yes. We are a very close family, but very poor. I mean, poor to the extent that you would walk in the streets without shoes.
0: Hushman runs marathons, which is kind of what you'd expect, right, for someone who made it out of the slums of Tehran. A typical student at the engineering school, where are they from? Can you give me a kind of profile of a... A profile
5: of a a kid from engineering. A father is a, you know fireman um, mom is a teacher the kid has been going to a public school uh, he's from 40 miles from here and he's just a brilliant young man or woman uh, gone through public school and got great scores and very much focused
0: he's you in other words yes yes school full of Ali yes husbands. yeah that's that's the beauty of
5: it, Malcolm that's why i say it's a blue collar university
0: Now, I'm convinced by Ali Hushman and by Hank Rowan. I think American society really is soccer. We're so interdependent, and we need so many perfect passes to score a goal that our challenges are weak link, not strong link. What matters is how good our 11th player is, not our first. We're in a second industrial revolution, and the lesson of this one isn't any different from the lesson of the last one. But it's really hard to get people to accept weak link arguments. David Sally, the economist who studied soccer, says he'll go to some billionaire oligarch who owns an English Premier League team and say, don't spend your 80 million pounds on one superstar player. Spend it on four pretty good players at 20 million pounds each. But the oligarch doesn't want to hear that.
4: If the oligarch is only worried about winning soccer matches, I can sell that. That's believable. Oligarchs buy teams for many other reasons, including wanting to hang out with really good-looking soccer strikers and wanting to sell a lot of shirts. A weak link strategy is not going to be the most glamorous thing.
0: And that's the problem. Superstars are glamorous. Nobel Prize winners are glamorous. Regional universities in rural South Jersey and solid, capable midfielders are not what people remember
4: are the unbelievably beautiful goals. It's a brilliant run from
3: Messi. going go all the way. It's one of the
4: great Commodore final goals. They may not realize that the seven maybe less glamorous passes that set up that eighth beautiful through ball were maybe arguably just as important, but they were much more mundane and they just involved simple movement to open spaces and and people don't adequately value that.
0: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases. And... on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Imagine you're part of a typical American family in the 17 or 1800s. After a long winter, you'd find the inside of your home covered in a thick layer of soot Your kerosene lamps and your coal or wood heating system would have rendered your home in desperate need of a vigorous cleaning. And thus began the annual ritual of spring cleaning, which also included the very important job of changing out your smelly straw mattress. And while your current mattress most likely isn't made of straw, there's still a good chance it needs replacing. You deserve a Sattva Luxury Mattress. Sattvas are meticulously handcrafted and include all the luxury features you'd expect from a high-end mattress. But because they're sold online, they cost a fraction of the price of retail. What's more, Sattva will set up your mattress in the room of your choice and take your old one at no extra charge. After all, you've got enough work ahead of you with all that spring cleaning to do. And now, save $200 on a $1,000 or more at sattva.com. Slash Gladwell. That's S double A T V A dot com slash Gladwell. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I was raised not to complain. I had one of those English, stiff, upper lip fathers. He carried his wounds and grievances on the inside. And I'm the same way. It's very hard to tell the difference between when I'm calm and happy and when I'm teetering on the edge. Is that good? Sometimes. Keeps things calm for my kids. But there are times when we have to share our burdens and enlist the help of others in making sense of our lives. That's where therapy comes in. A good therapist is someone who can walk with you and make that load on your shoulders a little lighter. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Gladwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, hel com slash Gladwell.
1: When we asked ourselves the question, what could Stanford do to make a better contribution to the world? We quickly converged on building a scholarship program that would bring the most talented students and prepare them to be leaders in the world, to lead on attacking the important problems. John
0: Hennessy, president of Stanford University since 2000, widely considered one of the greatest presidents in Stanford history.
1: As I began to think about the end of my term as president, I started to think. Was there something else perhaps we could do where we could build on everything we've put in place at Stanford and offer something that would be a great thing for the world?
0: Not long before we talked, I took a walk across the Stanford campus, and it's like entering a shrine to higher education. Everything is gleaming, gorgeous, groomed, green. That's all Hennessy's work. He's transformed the school doubled the endowment from 11 to $22 billion, made it into maybe the greatest university in the world. When we talked, he was just about to retire and thinking about his legacy. Many
1: people, myself included, became increasingly concerned about what we saw as a void in great leadership around the world in, in the public sector as well as in the private sector.
0: Hennessy decided he wanted to start a graduate program kind of like the Rhodes Scholarship. Every year, it would bring 100 of the brightest, most accomplished college grads from around the world to Stanford and let them apply their minds to the problems of the world. He goes to his deans, then his trustees. Everyone loves the idea.
1: And then over the summer, last summer, I went to Phil Knight and explained the idea to him, and he was enthusiastic
0: about it and came back a month later and said he'd help us make it happen. Remember, Phil Knight is the co-founder of Nike, a billionaire many times over, and a serious philanthropist. How did you pick Phil Knight as someone to approach? Was he the first person you approached? I knew Phil had been concerned about leadership globally. He and I had had a good working relationship. He, so he ends up giving $400 million. How does one arrive at that number? Is that a number you suggested to him? or? Is- it's roughly half.
1: I mean, we're, our goal is somewhere in the 750 to 800 to, to implement the entire program, secure it permanently. And so uh, I think in the past, finding a naming gift that, of that scale is probably necessary, and then you can find gifts to fill in the rest of it.
0: It was my criticism of the Phil Knight donation that led Hennessy to get in touch with me. He wanted to explain his thinking, which is John Hennessy wants to do a great thing for the world. So he sets up an 800 million dollar graduate program for 100 elite students. He's the anti-Rowan, right? Hank Rowan wanted to start at the bottom and tries to lift as many people up as possible. Hennessy starts at the top and lavishes 800 million on the most exclusive group he can find. Rowan is a weak link guy. His world is soccer. Hennessy is playing basketball and he wants to focus his billions on the superstars. In the time you've been at Stanford, the endowment went from what? From 11 to 22, is that right? Yeah, probably about 11 to 22, right. Most of that's
1: endowment returns, not mostly gifts, but there's some gifts in there too, obviously.
0: What is, uh, what's, how much is enough for an institution like Stanford? How much is enough? Um, I think it, we, um,
1: If our ambitions don't grow, then I think you do reach a point where you have enough money and I would hope that um, our ambitions for what we want to do as an institution both in our teaching and our research uh, grow.
0: In other words, there really isn't such a thing at Stanford as enough money. The school's ambitions are always growing, so its endowment should too. Just because you already have more resources than almost anyone else doesn't mean you should stop collecting even more resources. Hennessy is a hardcore strong linker. Hypothetically, if, you know, Bill Gates or Larry Ellison came to you and said, I'm giving you $10 billion. I'm retiring and I'm giving it all. My will says everything goes to Stanford. I mean, would you say, we don't know, we don't need it? Or... Would you say we can put that money to good use? Well, first of all, I don't think um,
1: either either Larry Ellison or Bill Gates is going to give me ten billion dollars unless I tell them exactly what I'm going to do with it and how I'm going to make it a good investment. And since I know both,
0: I know yeah. both of them. I can tell you they won't. <laughs> they won't do it. Um, could you make an argument to Larry Ellison that you could put, if he gave you ten billion, he, you could put it to good use? Ten billion. Just to put us in the ballpark, because I worry sometimes that Americans get a little jaded about big numbers. 10 billion is a few billion more than the gross domestic product of Barbados, and 4 billion shy of the gross domestic product of Jamaica. Basically, I'm asking what would happen if someone gave you, Stanford, the average economic output of an entire Caribbean country for a year? Tax free, by the way. The guy who gives the $10 billion gets to write it off. And every dollar Stanford earns on that $10 billion, they get to keep.
1: 10000000000 billion, I'd have to do something really dramatic for $10 billion. Really
0: dramatic. He thinks about it for a moment. Actually, I counted. For about two seconds. Then he comes up with something really dramatic. The one area where I think...
1: There is an opportunity for significant incremental funding is in the biomedical sciences. Um, If that were an endowment, for example, so you're throwing out a half a billion dollars a year, I could find a way to spend a half a billion dollars a year in biomedical research.
0: Ten billion. He could totally use another ten billion. At this point, I'm just curious. I mean... I've read about strong link thinkers in books, but I've never actually talked with one before. So I keep posing more and more far-fetched scenarios. Do you ever imagine that a, a president of Stanford might go to a funder and say, at this point in our history, the best use of your money is to give to the UC system, not to Stanford? The UC system is the University of California system. Ten schools, Berkeley, UCLA, San Diego, Davis, Santa Barbara, etc. Maybe the finest group of public universities in the world. If you listened to the previous episode of Revisionist History, the one about Vassar, I talked about the New York Times Access Index. It's a ranking of 180 universities in the U.S. according to how good a job they do in finding, educating, and financially supporting low-income students. Right now, Vassar comes in eighth. Well, six of the first seven spots on that list are University of California schools. Stanford has 16,000 students. The UC system has 238,000 students. So I'm asking John Hennessy, might there ever, ever be an instance where he might tell a would-be super philanthropist, look, we've already got $22 billion in the bank, higher than the output of two Caribbean countries, and it's earning us a couple of tax-free billions every year. Your dollar would go further at the public institutions down the street since they educate two hundred and twenty two thousand more students than we do with a fraction of the endowment. I'm not holding Hennessy to his answer. I'm not looking for him to make a solemn pledge. I'm just asking
1: well that's a uh, that would be a hard thing to do obviously to to um, turn them uh, turn them away and I think I think the other question we'd be asked is, how can I have confidence that they'll use my money well? Um, Which we're obviously, the president of Stanford is not in a position to vouch for, I think.
0: Now, I realize he has institutional loyalties. He's the head of Stanford. And I must say, I like Tennessee. But am I the only one who finds his answer ridiculous, even offensive? He's suggesting that he can't guarantee that the UC system may be the most successful and socially progressive public university system in the world. He can't guarantee they would use that money well? As opposed to what? As opposed to spending $800 million on a boutique graduate program for 100 elite students a year? That kind of using money well?
3: It is the preeminent scholarship program. You'll get the best and brightest young men and women from around the world who will receive a graduate education at the world's best university.
1: When this program is established...
0: We That's will... the promotional video for the Scholarship Fund. You just heard Phil Knight talking about it. You can watch all four minutes and 23 seconds of it at revisionisthistory.com. It's impressive. Lots of drone aerial shots of Stanford's spotless, palm-lined avenues. But let's do the math on the scholarship. Hennessey's plan is to fund it from the proceeds of investing $800 million. It's an endowment. The usual rule of thumb is that an endowment gives you about 5% a year, so $40 million. And with 100 students a year in a three-year program, that comes out to $133,000 per student. $133,000 per student per year. Are precious metals also involved? Helicopters? Are they doing this on a beach at St. Bart's? When Hennessy announced this scholarship, he gave an example of the kind of issues that perhaps these mega-scholars could tackle. He thought that they could look at the effects of the $100 million gift that the Facebook founder, Mark Zuckerberg, gave to the Newark, New Jersey public school system. Newark historically has some of the worst public schools in the country. And I guess the reason Hennessy thought Zuckerberg's gift needed to be studied was that there's a feeling among some that the donation hasn't had quite the impact people thought it might. This is the exact quote Hennessy gave to the New York Times Nobody understood the real difficulty in making significant change in the public education system. The first thing that the strong link guy wants to do with his crack team of $800 million scholars is critique the weak link decision to spend $100 million on poor kids. A billionaire gives a fortune to an elite school in order to understand why another billionaire's donation to a poor school isn't working out. And what if Stanford's mega-million-dollar scholars can't answer that question? Should another billionaire give even more money to an even more elite school to answer the question of why the $400 million gift to study the $100 million gift hasn't worked out? Please stop me before I tweet again. I'm not saying that the strong link approach is never appropriate. I grew up in Canada in the 1970s, and at that time, the country had lots of good universities. But there was a feeling that what the country needed was at least one world-class science and technology university. So they created that, the University of Waterloo. And it was a great idea. But the United States today is not Canada in the 1970s. It does not suffer from an excess of egalitarianism. It suffers from the opposite problem. Its strong links have never been stronger. And when you make strong link arguments at a time like now, you end up sounding ridiculous. Just listen. February 2014. The billionaire hedge fund manager Ken Griffin gives $150 million to Harvard. It's to support Harvard's financial aid program. Here's what the president of Harvard says. Ken Griffin's extraordinary philanthropy is opening Harvard's gates wider to the most talented students in the world, no matter their economic circumstances. And here's what Ken Griffin says. My goal with this gift is to make sure, and this is the exact quote, that our nation's best and brightest have continued access to this outstanding institution. Now, let me remind you. At the time of Griffin's gift, Harvard had an endowment of $36 billion. So a billionaire gives $150 million to an institution that has an endowment of $36 billion because he thinks the school needs help opening its gates wider to the most talented students in the world. Because he's worried that $36 billion might not be enough to ensure continued access to this outstanding institution. These two comments were not off-the-cuff remarks. I'm reading them from the official Harvard press release. Trained professionals perfected those quotes. Smart. Harvard-educated people approved them. They probably sat down in teams around a long oak antique conference table dating back to the 1800s and came up with what they thought was the most compelling justification for why giving another $150 million to Harvard is a good idea. Is that the best they could come up with? We're talking because I, as you know, have been critical of some of the... I'm part of the backlash, I guess. Back to my conversation with John Hennessy of Stanford, and I'm just curious about whether, how common, or how how much, how often do you run into the to backlash to people saying, "Enough" with some of these large? Am I a a lonely voice, or is this something that you have encountered a lot and think about a lot?
1: I, we don't encounter it a lot. I I would say. I think the reason we probably don't encounter it is that we um, don't view this as who gets the biggest slice of pie here. We view it as um, what can we do? What can we do that's transformative? How can we increase our contributions to the world?
0: I mentioned maybe the most obvious criticism of what Stanford is doing, and he says we don't encounter it a lot. Apparently, the president of Stanford only encounters people who look at American higher education and conclude that what it really needs is more money at the top. With all due respect, the president of Stanford needs to get out more. Take a little trip to Glassboro, New Jersey, to the campus of what's now called Rowan University. Maybe take a look at the statue up front.
5: Not family, to everything I could do was there by my side. And now to be with me
0: for the last the You've been listening to Revisionist History. Sometimes the past deserves a second chance. If you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you rate us on iTunes. It helps a lot. You can find more information about this and other episodes at revisionisthistory.com. Or on your favorite podcast app. Our show is produced by Mia Labelle, Roxanne Scott, and Jacob Smith. Our editor is Julia Barton. Music is composed by Luis Guerra and Taka Yazuzawa. Flawn Williams is our engineer. Fact checker, Michelle Soraka. Thanks to the Panoply Management Team, Laura Mayer, Andy Bowers, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Malcolm Gladwell. Every week at Revisionist History, we revisit the past in hopes of better understanding the future. That's what Mark Chakin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a living archive of financial history. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years. Across those decades, he invented three new indices for the NASDAQ and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Mark says the majority of Americans are misunderstanding what the AI frenzy means for their money moving forward with potentially dramatic and dangerous consequences. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will be impacted in the next 90 days. He put everything you need to know in a new presentation specifically designed for people off Wall Street. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at StockTrend2024.com right now. Again, the link to watch is StockTrend2024.com. That's StockTrend2024.com. You know, there's something about the Porsche way of doing things that just speaks to me. Take the all new Porsche Panamera, for example. It's not just another sedan, it's a bold choice. For those who aren't afraid to go against the flow, both with the car they choose to drive or the way they live their life. The Panamera redefines sports cars, comfortably seating four and proving that you don't have to sacrifice luxury for performance. Build your dream Panamera online right now at configurator.porsche.com and choose boldly. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.